Welcome to the Charleston School of Law podcast in part two of our series on wellness and the law. In part one of the series last week, we took a deep dive into the stories of Jonathan Raley and Gabriel Mangold, both 2L students here at Charleston Law. They courageously shared the challenges and their personal paths to redemption. You can hear part one of the series on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or visit our website at charlestonlaw.edu. Type in keyword podcast. In part two of this series, we turn the mics over to Jonathan and Gabriel for a student-led discussion with faculty, a practicing attorney, some additional law students, and Beth Padgett with Lawyers Helping Lawyers, a South Carolina Bar program and partner here at the Charleston School of Law. We also have a special announcement at the end of this show, so we hope you'll stay tuned for the news. And finally, a disclaimer. If you're a law student, an attorney, an alum, or work in the legal profession, and you feel like you might be struggling with stress or anxiety or depression or mental or substance abuse, we encourage you to reach out. If you have questions, ask. If you want to talk, ask. It's all confidential. The Charleston School of Law has open doors across campus. And you know what? One conversation can begin a journey to wellness. Our contact information is listed below in the show notes. My name is Jonathan Raley. I'm a 2L here at the Charleston School of Law. And today I am joined by many good friends and familiar faces. Gabriel Mangold, likewise a 2L here at the Charleston School of Law. Professor Bill Jansen, the longtime consecutive winner of student voted awards given to the most impactful professor on campus. Adam, a first year law student. Carl, a 2020 graduate, as well as Beth Paget, the director of Lawyers Helping Lawyers. To those sitting around the table today, on behalf of the entire school, thank you. Thank you very much for your time, sincerity, and honesty as we dive into today's conversation with the hopes of shedding light on the serious topic of substance abuse. If you haven't yet taken the time to listen to part one of this podcast series, it's linked below in the show notes, and I highly encourage you to give it a listen. Gabriel and I take a deep dive into what it used to be like and do our best to articulate the hopeless state of mind that accompanies alcoholism. Since the last episode was focused on what it used to be like, it is only fitting that today's episode is focused around what happened and what it's like now, the exciting stuff. We'll hear from Professor Jansen to learn about the increase in the prevalence of alcoholism and substance abuse within our profession, as well as his experiences in working with students here at the school who have reached out to him for help in the past. We'll hear from Beth Paget to learn ways that lawyers helping lawyers can help students and practicing attorneys alike as they combat the consequences of their drinking and take the steps necessary to lead a different life as well as a little bit of information as it pertains to the character and fitness panel in order to demystify that process for those who will one day go through it. We'll also hear from Adam, a first year law student here at the Charleston School of Law about his experience coming to the law school, having already been in recovery for over a year and thereafter finding a fellowship of students and professors alike who have helped him find his groove here at our law school and thrive both inside and outside the classroom. Lastly, another guest on campus is our good friend, CSO alumni and practicing attorney Carl, as he unpacks what it was like to go through law school without a program, what it was like to put down the drink as an attorney, and the peace and joy that accompanies him as a part of his day-to-day life here today. After reviewing last week's episode, I found it important to expand upon one point that we had discussed to hopefully set the tone for today's episode. 
personally, I knew from a young age that there would come a point in time where I would stop drinking. And though my decision to stop drinking was a vital and crucial step, I was soon thereafter told and found out that it was going to have little permanent effect unless it was followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of a lot of the things that were within myself which had been blocking me from a connection with something greater. What I didn't realize is that alcohol was but a symptom of a much greater underlying spiritual malady. What I did not realize is that while I had gotten sober, it was going to take some time to get to the point to where I could live sober, both physically and emotionally, while drinking and even in early sobriety. Selfishness and self-centeredness were the root of all of the troubles. I was driven by a hundred forms of fear and self-delusion, self-seeking and self-pity. As an alcoholic, we can be so achievement-oriented that we often surge right by the true value of relating to what is in front of us. Because I thought that accomplishing things would complete me, I never realized until I stopped drinking that it is in experiencing life on life's terms that would bring me happiness and not experiencing life on terms set by myself. My enemy was right in front of me, but I never knew it until I was willing to take an honest assessment at the unmanageability in my life, until I listened to other alcoholics in recovery who shared their experience, strength, and hope, until I found out that there was a solution and that I didn't have to find it on my own. If you think that you may have a problem with alcohol, drugs, or other substances, gambling, sex, food, you not only don't have to live your life that way, there's a way to find peace, joy, and serenity outside of a drink. By taking the road less traveled, it may not only save your life, but put you in a position where you can one day help save someone else's. Professor Jansen, it's great to see you today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You uh, looked over a few studies that looked into the statistics of substance abuse disorders among the legal profession. Do you mind sharing some of those statistics with us? I was uh, astonished by them, John. Candidly, a study that you shared with me from Anchor and Krill that suggested that upwards of 28% of attorneys uh, reported symptoms of depression. My experience would lead me to believe that that is dramatically understated. Uh, you described a minute ago our profession, well, the vulnerabilities of uh, addiction as uh, triggered by an achievement-centered environment. Can you imagine a more achievement-centered profession than the practice of law? You get everybody together to get into law school. You have to have had a remarkable undergraduate record. Then you get in with everybody else who is uber-driven like you are, and suddenly the stakes are higher, the competition is thicker, the feeling of solidarity, particularly when you get ushered off to read Penoyer for the 14th time, is profound. 28% of those surveyed in that one study uh, reported symptoms of depression. I found another study that said that uh, depression is reported by 6.7% of the entirety of the United States population. 45% of attorneys experienced depression at some point in their career. 12% had suicidal thoughts at least once in their lives. 21% of lawyers and others in the profession considered themselves problem drinkers. Maybe as many as 40% uh, are estimated as struggling with alcohol abuse. You can characterize the numbers any way you want. I, from my vantage point, I found them astonishing. Tell grandma, synthesize into a few shorter sentences, 
without all of the statistics, where do you think the legal profession is today as it relates to substance abuse? Enormously better. When I went to law school, it was a stigma. If you had a drinking problem, you did not go to a meeting, you did not share that with others. That was a journey that you took in a personal, quiet, largely non-sober way. I've shared with both you and with Gabriel um, my reverence for the opening of this conversation that you both have piloted. We had an opening session at the Charleston Museum, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't think there was a seat to be had. What's your experience been being an accessible professor? Our, our school talks about our open door policy with students reaching out to you. Have you found that students have come to you before and opened up about their struggles with drug and alcohol addiction? It would be a presumption, John, to say I was unique. I mean, I think every one of our colleagues are enormously driven to be very student-centered and student-focused. If you are a teacher at this law school, it's because a group of teachers approved your hiring and the number one criteria for hiring onto the faculty is the classroom experience is first. It is first. The access from teachers to the students and vice versa is prioritized. I think my experience is no different than any other of our teachers, but I, I know that we encourage that type of conversation and involvement. We do our best, as frail as an effort as it may be, to notice, even if we're not approached, things that seem to be a little off kilter and reach out. What y'all did with opening uh, discussion in uh, Charleston Museum encourages that. It normalizes the fact that having a conversation with somebody who is on the other side of the podium in the classroom is not just not inappropriate, it's, it's a positive, it's to be encouraged, and it's, it's an asset of the institution. One of those conversations you had with a student is Adam, is that correct? You want to tell us a little bit about Adam? Adam is an amazing law student who is very, very talented in thinking through complex legal issues. Like many law students, I think you get into a room, behind you are 45 other people, and there's the feeling like it's 45,000 other people, and there's always gonna be that person that's gonna say, no, that's a stupid comment. <laughs> and what we do our best, and, and I think we try to shut that down. There aren't dumb questions. There aren't waste of time observations. You do your best to uh, incentivize and encourage questions, observations, thoughts that can contribute to the dialogue. And in its best, in its most robust, a law school classroom should be a conversation. All of the students are participating, guided perhaps by the professor, but it should be a community of learning. Adam has been tremendous in that, and I'm delighted to have him in civil procedure. First, I wanted to thank you for coming on, Professor Jansen. I got to tell you, my own personal experience in being in your class in 1L, I came in here and I was already in recovery. You exuded a spirit of service from day one. 
you were genuinely interested in seeing people succeed on the terms that they wanted to, and you just kind of provided guidelines. And that made me feel at home because that's so much what I crave out of life. I didn't know it for so long. I lived in, you know, isolation, fear, and stigma of being judged. This school, and not just you, but all the staff, all the professors here, they have a feeling of uh, there's a display of inclusion. You know, try something, speak out, even though you're scared, just try it. And that's what you were talking about just now. And, you know, there are dumb questions. You know, that's how you learn. <laughs> and it's the same thing with, uh, with my personal journey in recovery. It was like I was so terrified of being vulnerable, of showing, telling someone or showing someone that I needed help. It's very difficult to do. It kills some people. And on that, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit to Adam. Adam Gabriel, before you move yeah. on, for those of you who might be listening to this <clears throat> that don't know Gabriel, Gabriel is the kind of guy that sits up front in class. He is very present. He's done all the reading before class. He's loud and dominant, and everybody in the room knows and loves Gabriel. And the remarkable takeaway that I had when I saw you and John that first time in the museum Gabriel? <laughs> Gabriel's got it all together. Gabriel is sort of like the poster child for the perfect law student. And that's a takeaway point to me. That means a lot coming from you. I owe a lot of any success that I have to my, uh, to my work in, in recovery and uh, trying to be as authentic as I can. Thank you, Professor Jansen. You help me do that every day. Gabe, I've had the, the privilege and the pleasure of getting to know you, not as only somebody that I look up to, but as a close friend and confidant. And I'm just curious, we talked a lot in part one about what it was like. And today we talked to everybody else about what happened and what it's like now. I was just wondering if you could share just a little bit about how your life changed. Uh, I'm filled with gratitude just thinking about how I used to be. Um, the one main difference is that I feel a part of for the first time in my life. I had always felt that I was separate somehow, like the universe, everyone and everything in it was off to the side and I was alone in the corner. By getting into recovery, I feel like I am a part of that. It alleviates me from a lot of incorrect thinking, harsh judgments on myself and others, fear, anxiety, stress. I try and be of service as best I can. And I say that law school was an extension of that. I learned about service through recovery. And my sponsor at the time asked me, so you do a lot of service work in the rooms, but how are you using your mind to help others? You know, before I was a lot about making money. And um, the reality is, is I wanted to come help others. That's kind of my journey here. And like Carl had shared earlier, I still, you know, I wake up some days and I'm filled with fear and anxiety and it's about how do I handle it now? I don't get drunk. I don't abuse the people that are close to me. I try and treat them with respect. And the best way for me to get out of that is number one, talk to someone else about it. 
and then turn my mind to someone else I can help. And that usually just snaps me right out of it. Before I know it, I have no idea what I was so upset about. <laughs> if you asked me what I was upset about a week ago, I couldn't tell you. But in the moment, it seems so real. In a spirit of reciprocity, <laughs> and, and truly I'd like to know because you are a big part of my recovery. I see you here. We didn't get to know each other when you were drinking in 1L. You know, we didn't know each other at all. And now I see the you that's you, and I've seen you grown like exponentially over the past, what has it been, seven months, eight months, you know, since we've really been connecting. I'm curious, what changes have you seen? What, just in that short amount of time, what does it feel like to be in the skin of John Rayleigh in law school and also being active in recovery? What, do, what is that like for you? I'm able to lead a life that is led with integrity and honesty. What's the word we talked about? Ineffable. Ineffable. I didn't know what that word, I, unarticulatable. Ineffable. I mean, it's ineffable. It's life-changing. I couldn't have ever imagined, you know, and I'm sure Beth could, could tell you, I mean, I couldn't have even imagined that this is where I would be if I looked back on a year and a half, two years ago. Just so many important people that deserve all the credit. It's not something I did on my own, but it was a life or death decision. And today, like you said, I'm filled with gratitude and I wake up every morning not anxious about what that day is going to hold, not anxious about what's going to happen in class because I know that at the end of the day, it's, some things are just outside of my control. All I, all I need to do is focus on the work and not the results. It's actually a aphorism I think I got from you, Gabe, but I, That's what's up. I think that... Uh, you know, when I look back on my, my first year of, of school, you know, I remember going into Professor Jansen's class and, you know, just thinking like, all right, like this is the one thing, like I'm just going to rock and I'm just going to be good at it. I was so results oriented to where like I needed the A. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I needed that A or I was, I was transferring schools. I mean, <laughs> like I needed it. You know, all I cared about was the results. All I cared about was focusing on what kind of grades I was getting. And today, I mean, I get an email and it says whatever, you know, says whatever grade I got and I'm, I'm significantly less concerned at what that's going to say, even in the competitive atmosphere that law school is, because I know that all I can do is focus on one day at a time and what I'm doing in that day to put my best foot forward. I'm focused on the work. I'm not focused on the results. Mm -hmm. I think the, the biggest change is that I'm filled with gratitude and, instead of being filled with entitlement. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I used to think that this world, these professors, my classmates, my friends, I used to think that everybody owed me. And now I'm just so grateful to be where I am, with who I am, with the relationships that I have. I get excited being of service. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that excites me and fills me up. Mm -hmm. And today I feel a part of instead of separate solely because of a fellowship of men and women, both in this room and outside of this room that have helped make that possible. So Adam, so good to have you here. Uh, I was telling Professor Jansen a little about my 1L experience of coming here not really knowing anyone. I didn't know any students. I didn't want to tell people that uh, about what I, you know, I had already been in recovery. I didn't really advertise that. I didn't really talk to professors about that initially. And I'm curious, just briefly, if you could, what led you to recovery? 
Well, first of all, thank you guys for inviting me out and having me on this podcast. Really happy to be here and joining some some great, remarkable people and part of this law school. It goes back, you know, for me, a lot of mental health issues were kind of the, the, the big issue that I kind of ignored. Last podcast, y'all were talking about being a guy, you know, it's it's kind of a hard conversation to have and, and it's kind of new, becoming less taboo to talk about it. Eventually, it all kind of came to a head right after I graduated college and uh, I was I was put in a hospital uh, and I kind of realized that, you know, the choices I were making, there was something that had to change, but what was consistent and where, what was leading to all my problems and the root of it was my abuse with alcohol. And, uh, so I had to make a change and I was so moved by that experience that I had dove head into the program and stuck with it. As you worked that program, when did law school kind of come into that? I come from a family of lawyers. My, my dad and my sister both are attorneys and I always looked at it and I remember watching my sister go through it and I just never thought I ever had the ability to do it. I was very full on in, in my addiction at having these thoughts and yeah, that's not for me. I can't do the work. I'm not gonna be able to hang. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'll find my own path, drink my way through it and kind of wing it. That didn't really work out very well. So, but the great news is that once I got sober, I was getting an enormous amount of confidence in myself, um, enthusiastic about just take on life new. And, and, uh, and I thought I'd give it a shot. So I tried, I, I put, put in my full effort. Not really being dialed into anybody at law school in recovery. Was there a period where you didn't really reach out to anybody? My first semester was pretty lonely actually, you know, and uh, you know, when I was invited to join this podcast, I was really excited because I really wanted to share this experience with anybody that, you know, might be joining us next year. And, you know, I came into law school excited. Um, and then as soon as I remember our first orientation, I just remember how like getting in the classroom, being there with everybody and seeing how accomplished my peers were, the intimidation really hit. I, I really just kind of retracted into my shell a little bit. And um, so I kind of, I don't know, I felt like this extreme compulsion. I know a lot of some of the upperclassmen came and talked to us and warned us about burnout and doing too much work. And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. Well, I, I know that I'm the kind of guy that I need to be doing it all the time. And so I tried to do that. I spent every weekend just doing work. I didn't really focus on making relationships with my classmates. I was intimidated by them. So I just kind of, I just kind of buckled down, did my thing. And, uh, it was awful. I, I started to <laughs> stop going to meetings. And, you know, I really started to get this sense of white knuckling it through and it was really painful. Any future one L's or any, anybody for that matter going into next year, hopefully, um, doesn't ever make that mistake. When you felt like that, what, what did you do? Like, did you reach out to professor Jansen? Did you reach out to people like Beth or anybody? I did. So, you know, I, I, I have a various amount of res uh, resources in my personal life and, you know, i talked about some people in, you know, in my 12 step programs and tried to figure out a strategy. And first I went over to the Dean cause I, I've been just trying to figure out, you know, some academic things of my own to just try to make it more manageable this semester for myself to try to build a little bit of a personal life here in town. And, um, and it was really close to when you all put on that professionalism event. And through that, that's how I was able to get connected to both John and Gabriel and even some other folks in the law school. And, mm -hmm. and, and then, uh, through John, I was able to get to know Beth and she's been wonderful. And it's sort of a simultaneous journey that was going on that kind of touches on what I was first going through 
was uh, sort of that intimidation in the classroom. I talked to some folks and and I was advised to maybe talk to a professor about it. And through that, I really had a um, just being in class in civil procedure and just sort of seeing how disarming and very willing to help students that feeling, you know, a little uncomfortable. And so I figured that would be a good person to approach. He's been an enormous influence and impact on my on my experience here. Could you just elaborate a little bit more about what happened when you were talking with Professor Jansen? Really just, first of all, very welcoming. You know, when I first got here, I didn't really take advantage of it, but it was often preached about as the open door policy at the law school that all the, yeah. all the professors <laughs> have, and they're all not a marketing. Yeah. 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 They're all, they're all great. They're all great. And, and they are, they have those opportunities, but I just never really sought it out. Professor Jansen was just very welcoming, invited me in. And, and, you know, we just had a conversation and just talked, you know, person to person, not even really student to professor. We just kind of got to know each other on a, on a uh, personal basis. And, you know, that helped me more come, mm. be more comfortable to open up and talk about, you know, express, Hey, I'm, I'm having a little bit of, uh, some trouble just kind of opening up in the classroom and volunteering. And I get a lot of nerves. I think all of us do when we get cold called, but I just, for me, it was, you know, it has a pretty serious impact on me. And, uh, so professor Jansen was just very, you know, gave a lot of good advice about, you know, when it's, when an, I'm called on, it's just him and me. It really helps me kind of stay locked in and, and not take things too, uh, too seriously in, in my head. Do you still continue those conversations with him today? I do. Absolutely. Professor Jansen's been a, a great, uh, you know, professor and friend to me and invited me to come in whenever and stop by. He's, he makes, he makes his schedule uh, convenient for anybody that, you know, wants to meet with him. He's willing to do anything to, to try to help. So it's great. Being sober, in law school in a town like Charleston. Did you find it difficult to make friends, you know, your, your first year? And did Professor Jansen help you get connected with any other students? Yeah, so, I mean, Charleston is, yeah, it's it's got that reputation, of course. Um, but it also... Um, you know, with any town that's kind of got that sort of reputation, there's also kind of a good community um, of uh, people that are kind of in the 12 step program. And I kind of tried to go through some uh, resources. Uh, I had a family member here when I moved here. And so I kind of tried to do that. But for a while, it was, you know, I don't know, I didn't really, I didn't really connect. I think my fear in the classroom kind of kept me a little bit isolated from my fellow students and talked to Professor Jansen about some advice on how to how to get to know some folks and around the school and just around town. And he gave a lot of good advice about that. And I mean, just through kind of reaching out to different programs, and I've been able to kind of expand my social circle a little bit. And then of course, you know, I think that professionalism, again, I can't echo enough was a saving grace for me because it, it it's just crazy how it happened at the right time mm. it helped me because I thought for a long time I was the only student sober and I was like surely that couldn't be yeah. and then when I saw the, the event I saw you guys and I said oh wow I'm not alone <laughs> yeah, what, one of the reasons we wanted to do that is because I spent most of 1L thinking I was the only student that yeah. was in recovery yeah, I, I, I get into 2L and John's a fellow in my section for the 1L like the first time we started talking we're like wait a minute <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've been here this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely wild. Yeah, a little disclosure. Actually, I'm fortunate enough to have both Gabe and John as my property and contract <laughs> yes, fellows. So that's kind of kind of kind of crazy how I went a whole semester and I didn't even know. It, but. but Professor Jansen, would you have had any inclination or any clue that Adam was struggling inside before he had come to you? Zero. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's common? 
where we're harboring all kinds of internal turmoil, stress, and anxiety. And when somebody asks you how you're doing in the hallway, you smile and you say, I'm doing just fine. I'm doing great. Yeah, and I think if you're going to telegraph, I'm having a rough spell at this point, you're falling down the list of the incredible competition you are all under. It's counterintuitive to acknowledge that. Gabriel, John, and Adam, absolutely no sense that there was uh, any issue there. So it's entirely understandable, mm-hmm. it, and it, if not predictable, that A-driven personalities would react that way. I think the bigger question, like the bigger moment for me is just what Adam said. Adam's description and Adam's experience is Adam's experience. My experience, I am nearly moved to tears by that setting. I thought that was absolutely remarkable. And it was like the handcuffs were coming off. Suddenly, Let's have this discussion. And look, the person sitting next to me and the person two rows down, and it's very empowering, that session. Speaking of empowering and kind of the at the center of the web of a lot of this recovery here at law school is Beth Paget, And I know that she's affected each of our lives as, as students, especially when we're seeking help. Everyone gets to see her a lot in her capacity for lawyers, helping lawyers and helping folks navigate mental health. Also preparing people for character and fitness, because that can be a real source of anxiety for a lot of us that have, you know, things that may or may not have happened (laughs) in the past. For for those of us that can remember. (laughs) Before anything else, I want to say that I have been doing this. I've been working with Lawyers Helping Lawyers for 12 years and started coming into the law schools uh, immediately upon being hired. And that was part of the reason why I was added to the the staff. At that time, I came on as a um, counselor and quickly got promoted to being the assistant director. Uh, so, um, and in, in that capacity, I was uh, to come into the law schools and build a presence for lawyers helping lawyers here in the law school and here and in Columbia. And it, we were one of the first states in the country that did this, that were who were really working with the, with the law schools, trying to make a difference in the law schools. You were talking about, I think you said heartwarming um, and just tears in your eyes when you found out certain things. And I have been having that experience sitting here listening to this conversation. And just the thought that there would, that we'd be here in 2023 making a podcast about this and that the students last year would have gotten together and decided to have that wonderful session and in the professionalism series where they got on stage and talked about their um, recovery from substance use disorders. It's just, uh, it's more than I could have ever um, imagined or hoped for. Talk about heartwarming and talk about tears in your eyes. Um, it's just every time I think about that that session that um, I want to get on the phone and call everybody I know <laughs> and talk about how wonderful it was all over again. But So thank you for letting me be here and thank you for doing this. I didn't, we really wanted to have students take, to be empowered to do things on their own. We really appreciate it. Lawyers Helping Lawyers, just generally 
speaking. It's a it's a service that provides programs and assists members of the legal profession, including law students who suffer from any sort of a problem when it comes to substance abuse, depression, anything that's affecting them professionally and or in their personal life. Is that right? That's correct. And we do that in various ways and could be from uh, very often it's just creating that relationship with a student who um, or with a lawyer who has not disclosed anything about their struggles to anybody else. It's my understanding that one of the most common reasons that a student may reach out to lawyers helping lawyers, at least initially, is because of concerns that they may have with character and fitness. Can you help shed some light on ways that Lawyers Helping Lawyers has and can help students as it pertains to putting themselves in the best position possible for the character and fitness panel? One of the very first things that we encourage of students is to be very honest about um, all of the things that will need to be reported to character and fitness. John, I know you've heard this from me before. It's just so important that as you approach your bar application, just as hopefully you approached your law school application that you are telling the the true story of yourself, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever. As a law student, when you're thinking ahead to the time that you're going to make your application for the bar, um, you need to be thinking about, um, about the candor and whether or not everything that is in your past is on your law school application and if everything in your past is going to be on your bar application because it, it needs to be on your bar application. Those things, those the two documents need to match. So we talk about telling the truth. We talk about how very often uh, people are very embarrassed to come to me to talk about things that they've done. I uh, am, you know, like the age of your grandmother's and, and uh, you know, it's uh, sometimes uncomfortable to think about going and sitting down and talking to somebody's grandmother about what you did when you were so drunk in undergraduate school and, you know, you barely remember but and you didn't remember but somebody told you or you woke up in jail. And I am, other than being an uh, addiction counselor and having a few other credentials, I'm also in recovery, so I do uh, help people feel more comfortable, I believe, by letting them know that if they they have to tell these things to a relatively old woman that just be glad it's me because um, there's no judgment with me. And when it comes time to have that conversation with you, it's a totally confidential conversation, correct? I mean, I'm, it's my understanding that Lawyers Helping Lawyers is a program of the South Carolina Bar. However, any kind of conversation, whether I'm struggling drinking, if I'm curious about getting sober, Maybe I've faced consequences as a result of a poor decision I've made. Even while in law school, I haven't reported it to the law school yet, and I can't sleep at night. I'm, I've got anxiety and fear coursing through my veins, and I come to you. That conversation is kept private, separate from the bar and separate from the school. Is that correct? It absolutely is kept separate from any other person. I do not report to anybody. There is confusion among law students and even among lawyers about the difference between the bar and the court. We're part of the bar and the court is, the character and fitness is a committee of the Supreme Court. We're a member service, so it wouldn't serve you to turn you in. Uh, or to, to, <laughs> um, we try to do, do a little better than that by taking what we know and helping you to become uh, a better person, to become a healthier person, and like take a look at what you've done, things you've done in your past that you're not proud of, that you're going to 
to have to talk to character and fitness about the things that you've done and the things that you're currently doing um, that are preventing you from being the best law student you can be. So we need to start working on those things and um, in little bits at a time and trying to make improvements over time by doing the next right thing this week and then maybe another right thing the, the week after that until we get to the point where you are um, able yourself to take a look at the, the list of things on your bar application and um, and realize that that those are things that lawyers need not do and, f- and find a way to, with, with help from lawyers helping lawyers, with help from counselors, with help from rec- other re- recovering um, lawyers in the community, and helping you become a person who would not do those things in the future. Mm. And I I want to talk about other attorneys in the community. I believe that I first had the pleasure of forming a relationship with you uh, during the fall of my 1L year. In fact, it's my recollection that it was a conversation in the hallway wherein you gave me your cell phone number and uh, said, pick a place, we'll grab lunch, my treat. We did exactly that. And at lunch, you were just asking me about my past, what I did during my three-year sabbatical between undergrad and graduate school. You found out a little bit about my past transgressions, what I needed to disclose, all that fun stuff. But most importantly, you told me that there was an attorney, a practicing attorney in recovery, who, like I, had worked at the Vail Resorts, um, worked at Vail Resorts, had lived there for a while, and said that you wanted to get me connected with him. I did exactly that. Um, and at no point in time in that conversation did you say, John, you need to do X. John, you need to stop drinking. John, you, you need to do this if you want my help. You know, I, I think that the only thing that you did was really just offer me the ability to get connected with someone who you knew would be a good fit. And from there, trusted in the process. And having come from Iowa and not knowing anyone locally, it was a connection that led to more fruits than I could have ever imagined. It's just having a, an advocate for me when it comes to things outside of the four walls of our school was such an incredible relationship that was a sole result of that very first conversation we had had. So I've got one, is that a service that you provide for any interested law student? And secondly, if there's an alumni or a practicing attorney who's interested in serving as a mentor for a current law student, can they reach out directly to you? Absolutely. And I'm going to answer those questions um, backwards. Uh, Yes, if there is a recovering attorney recovering from uh, a substance use disorder or from depression, anxiety, we need all of the recovering uh, lawyers that we can have, uh, that we can find to be on our list so that we can provide mentors to um, law students like yourself. We want to build relationships with, with law students and with lawyers. And that is really, the, I, for me, one of the answers, one of the uh, first answers to all of our problems is you know, creating relationships. We haven't had very many um, real safe and nurturing relationships in our lifetime, those of us who are in recovery. And so um, to, to start to create those things is something that feels good to me, it feels right to me, and is something that is very healing for all the people that we come in contact with. So yes, so I, I want to slow Slowly and comfortably build relationships with students and with lawyers. I want to not judge you. I want you to feel not judged. And I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to find your own way. 
I, I want to to remember all the the little pieces of different people, their personalities, the places they've been, the things they like to do, so that when, as we meet other students who need mentors and monitors, that we can connect the people who are likely to have something in common with one another, so that you're not going there. If you, if I, if you thought you were going there just so they could make sure you didn't drink, that wouldn't be very um, helpful. So we want you to go there to um, find a friend. And then whatever comes after that is yeah, okay, uh, right, absolutely, John? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the friend first, uh, letter of recommendation. And I just heard that Beth bought you lunch, and she's never bought me lunch before, and I'm a little resentful of that. I gotta tell you, just gotta get there's a program right. for that. <laughs> there, there is a program for that. So, <laughs> like showing up to class with your reading accomplished and your cases briefed, it's my understanding that students can bring a pseudo portfolio of sorts with them when the time comes to stand in front of the character and fitness panel. It's my understanding that there's a presumption that will be made by this panel that when called before them, attesting to one's own sobriety or even attesting that you've made a mistake, but it was just that, just a mistake. It's not enough to show that one has taken the steps necessary to lead a sober life. What can lawyers helping lawyers do to help guide students in creating that portfolio? And what are the, some of the most important things that you think need to be included therein? One of the things that is very important is for the bar applicant and the person who is standing at the podium in the character and fitness hearing to be able to tell a compelling story of how they moved from the person who committed those offenses to being a person who would never dream of committing those offenses. Compelling means that uh, there was a, a level of maturity that occurred from point A to point B. With that maturity or what brought the uh, maturity about was the developing the capacity to self-reflect to see who it was who offended and why you might have done that and how it felt and how the other person might have felt and come to understand that in a, in a mature way um, so that you're not blaming other people or blaming the police or, or what have you. And then move into the part about what you did, what actions did you have to take in order to let go of the person who did those things? How did you become someone else? So as you're telling your story of becoming someone new and you talk about how the, the meetings that you went to, the people you met in the meetings, the sponsor that you engaged with, the recovering lawyers that you have met, um, some of them through Lawyers Helping Lawyers and some of them out in the meetings in the community. And you talk about the, the principles that you gain through 12-step uh, programs that allowed you to, to, to learn how how to do different things, how to find those old activities less appealing and how to find service and a connection to others, to connection to healthy people. One of the main things that law students need to be involved in that is a, a positive activity that's very recovery-based is learning how to be, being willing to be a good law student, to be a good citizen here in this community, and how to be uh, continuing to build your character and your fitness so that when it's time for you to go before the Character and Fitness Committee, you're telling a true compelling 
compelling story. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many of those in my, the 12 years that I have been here. And there's nothing better, truly. And you help students tell that story, right? As you students get to know you, you at no charge stand right next to them when it, the time comes and can help further attest to their story That's since right. they've spent the time to build a relationship with you, correct? Uh, that's right. Absolutely. I go to um, quite a few hearings twice a year, February bar and the July bar. So yes, I've done it over a hundred times, I'm sure. And for students who are interested in practicing in other states, you have direct connections to that state's Lawyers Helping Lawyers programs. Yes, that is correct. We know all of our colleagues across the country. Back to relationships, we love building relationships with other states, the people who do this work. There are less than 500 people who work in lawyer assistance across the country. So we do try to stay together and connected, and we um, absolutely love being able to call another director Um, in another state and say, hey, we've got um, this bar applicant coming your way and we've known him for two years, three years, however, or we just met him last month, but he's committed to doing the next right thing. Tell me um, if how you want him to come or her to contact you. We'd love to do that. That's great. So don't you guys be thinking about going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of anxiety about the character and fitness panel. And I know that I felt it before and You've shared with me that candor and honesty are the most important things that the character fitness panel is going to look for. Any points to help alleviate some of that anxiety that some students may have? You have the opportunity to hear within the first week of law school. If you have reason to think you're going to be called into character and fitness, go see the folks from Lawyers Helping Lawyers. A lot of people wait and wait and wait. And as you're waiting, the anxiety in you is building and building and building. I believe that after you talked to me the first time, your anxiety went down. Absolutely. Okay. And so just think how you would have felt for the year and a half before that (laughs) 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 if you'd done what they said. And so my encouragement is do not carry that anxiety around. (laughs) There's enough anxiety in law school without carrying that extra anxiety. Um, You know, things can be fixed. And it it, it starts with being Mm. honest and, um, and willing. You t- tell it, and we'll start taking care of it. Drag it out into the light. That's right. You know, your contact information will be listed below in the show notes as the best way for students or current attorneys to reach out to you via email, cell phone. Send me a text and um, say, please give me a call. Uh, cell phone's always the best way. It's just wonderful what Lawyers Helping Lawyers does, truly. Thank you for listening to the Charleston School of Law podcast in our series on wellness in the law. We invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform as we introduce you to great legal minds, legal topics in the headlines, and the law school's latest news and events. As we said at the start of this episode, we have a special announcement. There will be a part three of our wellness in the law series. On the next and final episode of the series, you will meet a Charleston Law alum and practicing attorney. I never dreamed that I would be here as any sort of successful person as I was 
going to law school here. Every day I was absolutely miserable. I didn't want anybody to see that I had the problem that was obvious to everyone. Hear his courageous story on the next episode of the Charleston School of Law podcast. Thanks for listening.